This morning is December 5th. It is Sunday morning. And this morning we are going to be covering John 3. And uh, I believe we will title this, Lift It Up. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to John 3. Something that you will notice is people that can't quote any verse besides Judge Not Lest You Be Judged, which is one that seems to be universally known. There's something in that that makes people want to know it, even if they don't know what comes before it or after it. It's John 3.16. We're going to be in the book of John today. So from the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Lift it up. Uh, page 1178 in the Thompson chain. But another verse that everybody seems to know is, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see it at baseball games. You see it everywhere. But rarely is it ever understood in its context. So we will not get to John 3.16 today, but we should cover John uh, 3.1 through 15. And... You will look at John 3.16 in a whole different light when we go through this. Some of the previous teachings ought to help us discern this too. So, starting in John 3, verse 1, we, uh, we're going to pick up. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Let's talk about that for a minute. The term born again is one that is uh, popular, really popular now. Most Protestants see this as a way, or evangelicals, See this as a way to distinguish somebody who calls themselves a Christian um, by an experience as somebody that calls himself a Christian by heritage or birth. So, in our day, when somebody says, are you a born-again Christian, they're almost asking you, everybody says they're a Christian, but have you really had an experience that defined you as a Christian? Or were you just born into this thing? Uh, uh, without picking on anybody, for whatever reason, the Catholic Church, or a Catholic organization, I shudder to call it a church, promotes the idea that you were basically born into this and deny a born-again experience. Uh, they interpret this away. But not just the Catholic Church. Uh, Presbyterians, lots of people do this. And so people that have had an experience with Jesus have used this word to define... Uh, a moment in time. And while that's great, I mean, I do it. I do it all the t time. I ask people, when were you born again? I tell people, I was born again on this and that date. That's not literally what, what Jesus is talking about. Do you remember when we covered earlier in John that the Jews had certain expectations about the Messiah? They uh, were waiting for a fiery prophet who would come and be able to call down fire. They're waiting for a mighty king who would come in and conquer. Um, they're waiting for somebody like Moses that would deliver them out. But nowhere in their messianic expectation did the word change personally apply to them. They were waiting for a Messiah that would come and bring about change, but not change in them. And when 
Jesus was announced as the Lamb of God, it was confusing. It was confusing because this lambs were always associated with sacrifice and sacrifice was associated with personal sin. So when He's the Lamb of God come to take away your sin, it meant you were guilty and you needed Him. That was confusing to them. And one of the most challenging things that happened was John the Baptist shows up and begins to tell people, you need to repent. Jews didn't think of themselves as needing to repent. They thought of themselves as in the plan of salvation and not needing to do anything differently. So with that in mind, this guy Nicodemus comes and the first thing Jesus tells him is, you will not see the kingdom of God. You can't unless you're born again. That was a real foreign thought. That was something that was challenging immediately. But if we look at these first few verses, and I tell you a little bit about Nicodemus, it really is insightful. It ought to cause you to look introspectively into yourself about this. It says, Now there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. First off, the Jewish ruling council, what is that? Well, there were 70 or 72 members. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, that makes up the body of the Sanhedrin. They're the ruling body in Israel, like our Congress, except unlike our Congress, it was also a religious organization because Israel's constitution is uh, the Mosaic law. That the Mosaic covenant is Israel's constitution. So when our senators are meeting on Capitol Hill to decide matters of law that relate to civil, we have a civil law. Their civil law was also a religious law. Israel is a religious state. It's a theocracy, uh, as is the kingdom of God. So this guy who comes is important. One of the things that you notice immediately is he came to Jesus at night. You know, Jesus taught during the day. Jesus was a public figure. He had crowds around him during the day. And this guy came at night. And that tells you a little something about his timidity. You know, he possibly came at night because... They didn't want everybody to see him. Why? One thing that you need to understand, probably the single biggest uh, thing that prohibits anybody from coming into the kingdom is worrying about what other people will think. Mm-hmm. And Nicodemus had a particular handicap here. It's not all that hard to worry about what people think when people don't think very highly of you to start with. That's why the poor are rich in faith. See, the poor are well aware of their needs and so is everybody else. If you are constantly in need of help, there's not a lot of pride of life that goes with that. But when you are a very wealthy person, when you are a person of prominence, it becomes much harder for you to admit need because people look at you as one who provides, not as one who needs. So Nicodemus felt it necessary to come at night. So you can see that you can see in a man's actions something that is reflected in his heart. There's the pride of life there. So Nicodemus comes to him at night and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher. Now, he didn't say, I know. He said, we know. So what's he talking about? Something that I I had not picked up on many times in the past. There is a lot of plural pronouns in this uh, discussion that's fixing to happen. We have always said, you must be born again. That's not literally what the Hebrew says. If you look at your footnote, there, what is you when it's plural? <laughs> yeah, don't you love that southern word? In the north they say you guys, here we say y'all. As Jesus is addressing Nicodemus, because he's a member of the ruling council, 
He's also addressing everybody else uh, that Nicodemus represents. He says, y'all must be born again. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's kind of funny to think of Jesus speaking that way, but uh, it's a different language. (laughs) Okay, so he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Friends, if we just start with what Nicodemus knows about God, you can see a spark of faith there already, huh? This is because he is in the plan of salvation. I mean, he's in it, he's around it, but something's evading him. And it's the need for a personal change. See, he's grown up around it. He understands much of it, but he does not yet understand the need for personal change. I want to challenge you today that let's start with just what you know about God. You know, most people would agree that God is a powerful guy. Most people would agree that God is caring, that these kinds of things... Start with what you know about God. Think about that. List His attributes that you know of in your mind. Now, what does that knowledge about God demand that you do? See, most people spend their whole lives trying to not admit what they know about God, trying to explain what they know about God away, trying to ignore something that gnaws at their conscience because once you admit, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, then something is going to be required of you. The problem is once that faith is born, once you know something about God, then you are held accountable for something. You, it's evidence that demands an action. Does that make sense? So Jesus is in a unique position with him. Once this guy's admitted this, Jesus can cut right to the chase. It's not a matter of, well, Jesus, I wonder if what you're saying is good. Jesus, I'm examining you to see if you're from God. The guy admits right up front. We know that nobody could do what you do unless he came from God. That ought to mean that whatever Jesus says goes, right? Now, we know that this ruling council ultimately decided to kill Jesus. I would submit to you that in your lives and in the lives of the people that are around you, if people just would freely admit what they knew about God already from the creation, from the things they have been delivered from in their lives, car wrecks, whatever it is, that that demands movement in their life. Now, here's the thing about the gospel, and you need to know this. The gospel is a line in the sand. Once you have knowledge about God, you have to decide what you will do with it or what you won't do with it. The Jewish ruling council decided to kill Jesus. They knew He was from God. They never denied that. But they decided to kill Him because they did not like the message. And we shun that, of course. Uh, Through the Middle Ages, Jews were almost hunted around Christmas time because their ruling council in the first century did this. Not every Jew did. Not every member of the Jewish council did. We're going to look at Nicodemus' life a little bit today. But think about you. Think about the populace that we live in. We have the same situation before us. There's evidence about God and we have to make a decision. Do you disown Him or do you embrace Him? And nobody ever wants to admit to disowning God. Everybody says, oh, He knows what's in my heart. Your actions either deny His existence or substantiate His existence. You know, if you had a wife, you could say you 
We're not ashamed of her, but if you refuse to take her in public and people ask you if you were married, you either didn't answer or said no. Your actions show that you're ashamed of her. But if you walk around with your wife like a trophy, excited, talking to her about her to everyone, it shows your feelings towards your wife. Jesus is not any different. If He's evident in your life, it shows that your actions are promoting Him, are showing your belief. If He's not evident in your life, it's because your actions are denying Him. That's very important. Okay, so Nicodemus is right here. And uh, he's a member of the ruling council. And uh, the council understands that he's from God. I mean, you see this admission several times in John. In reply to all of this, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The Jews were waiting for the kingdom of God to be at hand. And when you think of kingdom of God, because we are Westerners, because we've been shaped by years of wrong teaching, we think of a kingdom of clouds with babies with wings and hearts. When a Jew thought of the kingdom of God, he thought of Israel ruling the nations. That and, and God with Israel. That was the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is telling this guy, unless you have personal change in your life, you will never see that day. You will not be in the Israel that is ruling over the nations. Now this is really important because it puts responsibility. He's admitted what he knows. I know you're a teacher that's come from God. Now Jesus is telling him, unless something happens in you, unless there is change in you, you cannot participate in this. Nicodemus does what everybody does. He takes that knowledge and he says, How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. Now before we go into Jesus' answer, this kind of rationalization is what everybody does. It's when you take something spiritual, you have this gnawing feeling in you that God is trying to get your attention. This thought in your mind that God might want something from you but you begin to rationalize it in every way. It's just not practical. I just can't go be some fanatic. Uh, if I did that, I would lose my job. If I did that, my wife would leave me. If I did that, what kind of father would I be to my children? They would see me as weak or a wimp or all of this, all the if-eyes. Nicodemus tries to rationalize this because he's trying to avoid personal responsibility. So Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Now, I've heard people try to make this be baptism, try to make it all kind of things. What is the most obvious thing given the context that this could mean? You know, he says... Look, how can I get back in my mother's womb if that's really what you're telling me to do? Jesus said, hey, you have to be born of this water and the Spirit. You have to be born naturally through water. The, first, the way that a woman knows she's going into labor, nine times out of ten, the historical... Before we had all of the equipment that we had was when her water breaks. A baby is born through water. You have to be born in the natural way but you also have to be born in the spiritual way. And is just to avoid any confusion, Jesus said the flesh gives birth to flesh. That's the water. And the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Just so that it couldn't be confused. 
You should not be surprised at my saying, y'all, or you, must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, this, this is one of those that, I'll be honest, I don't know whether it's because we're reading it in English and it was written in Greek and probably spoken in Hebrew, uh, that it seems so difficult, or whether or not it's just because we tend to be carnally minded. But I can tell you, it doesn't take years of study to figure out what it means because it's really very obvious, but it was hidden from me for a long time. I thought, God, Jesus is speaking to him in riddles. He's really not. He was talking to Nicodemus about something spiritual, a rebirth, a change in his life, some kind of change. And Nicodemus started talking literally about being born again, literally passing through a womb a second time. And Jesus says, look, man, the kingdom's like the wind. See, you hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's talking about the manner of being born again. He said, it's kind of like the wind. Can anybody point to a spot anywhere on the globe where wind begins? Can you? I mean, we know what happens that creates wind. You know, the uh, rising of hot air and the lowering of cool air creates movement that is wind. We know that. But where does that begin? Does that mean it's not a reality though? Just because you can't point to a spot and say, look, there it happened, like you can with natural childbirth, doesn't mean that there's not a rebirth. What he's basically telling Nicodemus is, look, wind's everyday part of your life. Even a child can recognize it. You recognize it by its effects. He said, it's just like that when you are born again. The spiritual birth is the same way. You may not understand exactly how it happens, but you recognize it by its effects. That's literally what he's telling Nicodemus. Let me digress for a minute and talk to you about Nicodemus. The first time Nicodemus shows up in the Scripture, he comes to Jesus at night. This is much like everybody that you know. They have some knowledge about God, they're curious, but they really don't want anybody to know that they're interested. If they go to church, they sit in the back. Uh, They try to go to bigger churches so that nobody might point them out. Because they're curious, but they're not ready for anybody to know they're curious. Kind of like when you go buy a car. When you go buy a car, if you pull up to the front, you know you get swarmed by salesmen. So what do all of you do when you go to buy a car? You look around the outside a lot first. You drive through, but don't get out of the car. You know, you do everything you can to be able to show interest without having to be engaged and put on the spot. That's how people approach Christianity. It's how he's approaching Jesus. I want to go when nobody can see what I'm doing. And I want to talk to this guy, but I don't want to be put on the spot. And churches are pressured constantly not to put you on the spot. There's a problem though. The gospel and the turning point in people's life demands that you come to a place in your life where you're absolutely 100% put on the spot. It can't be done as a human invention. I can't work you guys into an emotion and try to get you to an altar so I can go check off my list so many saved and so many baptized. It doesn't work that way. But the Spirit of God will bring you to a place in your life where you're absolutely on the spot. And there is an urgency in you. And you have to make a decision whether you will accept Him openly or whether you will deny Him privately. Nicodemus came at night and it shows you there's a spark of faith there. There's interest. But he wasn't real sure. 
The next time you see Nicodemus in the Scriptures, John 7. Go ahead and flip over there. This is the next stage that people go through on this quest to be changed. In John 7, verse 45, we have a discussion going on in the Jewish council. And I, I don't have time to explain because we're going to teach John 7 later what all they're fighting about. But in 745, it says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. Basically, the ruling councils decided that they should arrest Jesus, but the guards who got to arrest him come back without him. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, that there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find the prophet doesn't come from there. And we'll cover what that means later. The first step is a curiosity, a circling of the car lot, if you will. You have an interest, but you don't want to be engaged. The second step is God puts you in situations where others are coming against what you're interested in. They are your, your heart is being revealed to you and to them based on what you do. Because God will put you in a situation where this interest, this faith that is starting to grow, others come against. And how you react to it shows you and shows God where you are. In this case, remember, Nicodemus is a member of the ruling council. And their proclamation is, none of the Pharisees, none of us have gone to believe in Him, have we? Nicodemus had gone to Him. And there's some indication that there was a spark of faith, a beginning of belief there. But it was not strong enough yet for him to stand up amongst his brothers, was it? This is a chance for him to stand up and be identified with Jesus and reap rewards or punishment. But what does he do? Instead, he does what people who are considering Christianity do. He says, does our law really condemn somebody without even hearing him? In other words, I'm advocating for Jesus, but I don't really want to be identified with Jesus. And they, at the slightest hint of this, you see their visceral reaction. Are you from Galilee too? He doesn't say no. I mean, he has a chance to say, yeah, I agree with him. But he doesn't do it, does he? This is where most people that you meet are. This is where most people in the United States are. I know something about God. I really... I'm interested in this Christ. I just don't want to be engaged. I really would not like you to talk bad about Him. I would like you not to come against Him, but I'm not going to stand up for Him either because I don't want to be persecuted. This is not salvation. These people do not make it. That is like being on the right road, but only halfway there. That's exactly what happened. But praise be to God... You find out from Nicodemus later, the third time he appears in Scripture, which is uh, John 19. And let's go ahead and read that. Then I will get back to earlier. What is the most traumatic, pitiful, uh, not pitiful, uh, pivotal point in all of the Scripture? It is the cross and the resurrection. If you did not have the courage to be identified with Jesus while He was doing miracles, 
If you did not have the courage to be identified with Jesus during a time period when uh, others were rebuking Him, you surely would not have the courage to be identified with Him at the moment it looked like His ministry had failed because He had died on a cross and before a resurrection unless something dramatic had happened in your life. A rebirthing kind of experience. A second start. A whole new perspective. And what do we see? We see in John 19.38, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. This is after the crucifixion. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Now, you don't see this here, but Joseph is also a member of the ruling council. With Pilate's permission, he came and took away the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh, and it goes on to say, and they put him in a new tomb that they bought. They were not willing in Jesus' lifetime because of the pressure of people to be identified with him. But that spark of faith had grown in their hearts to the, to the point that at the moment it looked to Jesus' disciples, those who had been faithful, all of the ministry, when they were uh, abandoning, running off, people like Peter denying, the rest hiding, these guys stood up and were willing to be identified with Jesus. Now, I would imagine this meant that they were thrown out of the Jewish council. I mean... You would think so. The Jewish council just voted to put him to death. Now you're showing sympathy to him. I would imagine that this meant all of the persecution that they had feared the whole time had come upon them. But these men had over three years counted the cost and decided he was worth it. Friends, whatever we do today, the mark of John 3 is for you to be put on the spot, for you to have an honest conversation with you and God and decide whether or not He's worth it and for you to come away with the decision that come hell or high water, you follow Jesus. If you do not honestly look at your life and see the need for a change, you're not yet in a place where you can be saved. If you are there but are fearful of the way that it will be received, so is all the rest of humanity. You have to let faith in who He is and start with what you know about Him. You are a teacher who's come from God. Begin to move you into a place where you are willing to endure whatever it takes for Him because He came from God. Does that make sense? Okay, let's swing back to John 3. An eerie silence in here, isn't there? If you start with Nicodemus and what he knew, and then you think about what do you know about God, what does your knowledge demand that you do? Remember, when you've been given much, and guys, you're being given much, much is required of you. You're not on a desert island without a Bible, without people witnessing to you, without lies for you to look at, being expected to find God. Less would be required of that individual than is required of you. Make no mistake about it. God will require more from you guys than He would from the average person because you're being taught on a regular basis. I told that to a guy one time in 1993 and he said, well, stop. Stop telling me. I don't want to hear it anymore. Look, please, 
And I looked right at him. I was working for him. I said, you coward. You mean you are so scared you might have to do something? You are so scared that God might require something of you that you'd rather live in ignorance? I hope those words stuck with him for the rest of his life. You remember Nicodemus found himself in a place where all of his peers were around him and his heart had to be revealed? None of us have believed, have we? God will put everybody in that place. You have all heard Buzz tell the story of being in the chemical plant and a guy's got a Jesus sticker on his hard hat and Buzz says, hey, hallelujah! And the guy just looked at him and Buzz said, hey, 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 praise God, man! And the guy just looked at him and it dawned on Buzz. He goes, wow, that's not your hard hat, is it? And the guy said, well, took it off. No, no, it's not. And you could see in the guy's face at that very moment he realized he was denying Jesus. I, I remember the same moment in my life. Most of us can remember that moment. You have to respond correctly. And if you've gotten it wrong in the past, you can get it right tomorrow. Okay. The wind explanation. The origin of the winds, i.e. where does it start, what is it, where does it end, are a mystery. There's, that's something that most people don't comprehend, but it's a part of your daily life. It's difficult to put your finger on it in natural terms, but the effects of wind can be clearly seen even by children. And it's the same way with people when you're born again. Exactly how it happens, exactly what happens, that might be a bit of a mystery, but even a child can recognize it in you. I remember in my life there wasn't a person around me that didn't know something was different. That's how being born again happens. You will literally see this change at the resurrection. Until then, it remains a bit of a mystery. Let's go on with John 3. Verse 7, right after he says, the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Listen to Jesus. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Nicodemus' name meant conqueror or victor over the people. See, he was held by position, by name, by everything as a great man. And he didn't understand this basic principle. What Jesus is telling him in a not-so-subtle way is, you are not fit to be a teacher of Israel. Because you don't understand this, how then will you go teach other people? That is the hardest thing in the world to hear and it's required of everybody who comes into the kingdom. For you to realize your competence does not come from you. It comes from God. Nicodemus had to be brought to that place before he could progress in the kingdom. This was insulting. There's something insulting to our pride about receiving the gospel, period. This is why the response by the world is it's a crutch for women and children. Because their pride will not allow that they need help. If you were held as a victor or a conqueror over the people, someone great, it would be hard for you then to go under the attitude of serving the least, wouldn't it? If you're already the least, it's not hard at all, is it? That's why lowly, humble people come to Jesus before the rich. This is the explanation of it's hard for a rich man to be saved. 
That's the explanation of it. It's not because money inhibits spiritual growth. I hope to obtain some money one day (laughs) while I'm growing. It's because when you think of yourself highly, it is hard to be saved. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Do you notice he's saying you people? As he's talking to Nicodemus, and it is to Nicodemus he's addressing it, he is also addressing it to the party that Nicodemus represents, the Jewish ruling council. He said, I'm I'm not telling you about something that I read in the book, man. I'm telling you about something that I know and that I've experienced, and you do not believe me. Wow. That is the role of a Christian, to get to know people so that they can see in you that this is not some idea. This is something that you have experienced because that is evidence that there's a God that demands action in their lives. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, I've always read this as Jesus is saying, hey man, we're on level one. If I go to level ten, you're never going to get it. And that is part of it. But you know what he's really saying? He's saying, Nicodemus, you wanted to argue about natural things. How you enter a mother's womb a second time, all of those things. You don't understand me when I'm talking about natural things. How's it going to be if we move into a purely spiritual realm? This is that whole group in Christianity, and you know exactly who I'm talking about, that every time there's anything spiritual in the Word, they want a natural analogy. See, see, it's like a gift. If I give you a gift and all, they don't understand the natural analogy, much less if we move to a spiritual thing. We need to get to a place where we simply accept that Jesus is the teacher come from God and His words above ours and do it because He says do it. Whether you understand it, isn't that what we expect of our children? I don't need Judah to understand why I want him to put down the hairdryer before he gets in the bathtub. I simply want him to obey me. And then it's a merciful act that I go and explain why. But it's not required of me. I'm the Father. God wants the same kind of obedience. I want you to do it because you believe I'm God and you're not. Then, out of mercy, most of the time, every time I can think of in my life, at some point He's explained to me why. Through His Word, through experience. You know, when you're a 15-year-old kid and your hormones are raging, it seems like a pretty cool, cruel thing that the Bible says you have to be married before you have sex. You know, you, why? Seems like a perfectly natural urge. Why? You know, why you give me these hormones? I remember you thinking, if I'm not supposed to do that. I mean, why'd you set me up to fail? It's not required that you understand. It's required that you be obedient. Now, this side of it, I can understand. Emotionally, you're not prepared for that. Aside from emotionally, you're not prepared for that. It causes heartache. It tears people's lives apart. All you got to do is be in ministry for a few years and you can see scars that have been on people since they were teenagers because of promiscuity. I mean, you, you can see it. Much less adult lives. You are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still, you people, y'all... Do not accept our testimony. 
I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that as the supreme authority. You said, Nicodemus, when you showed up, that you believed I was a teacher came from God and that nobody could do what I do unless He came from God. Now, I'm telling you, you haven't been into heaven. I came from there. So you ought to listen to me. You know? We can argue all day long about how the Cajuns cook food in Thibodeau. But if you've never been there and Cassidy lives there, who's the authority in this situation? We're used to arguing from theoretical standpoints. The Scripture almost forbids it. You argue from an experiential standpoint. Because the Scripture's not about how wise you are, how articulate you are, where your verbal skills are. This is why Paul says, my message does not rest on arguments, but on a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I always thought of that as miracles and stuff. And it is, but really what he's saying is not that. He's saying, I am not talking to you about wise and persuasive words. I'm not trying to persuade you by putting together a beautiful argument. What I'm telling you is either backed up by God or it's not. And in His life it was. In my life it is. In your life it is. Or should be. That's not miracles. That's the changed life. If I'm talking to you about being born again, it needs to have happened to me. You need to be able to see in my life He was on this track and He got a new beginning and I can see it's been different every since then I'm not talking to you about something, a place that I heard of. I'm talking to you about a place I lived. That's why it's required for you to be in the kingdom of God, for you to have had this. Otherwise, you're talking about a car you've never even sat in. You like it. You've admired it from a distance, but you hadn't even been on the test drive, much less bought it. And why? You were scared of what people would think. Don't forget those three things about Nicodemus. He came at night the first time because he was curious, but he didn't want to be engaged. The second time, he wanted to defend Jesus, but he was scared of what everybody would think. But God progressed him to a place where at the lowest point, seemingly in Jesus' ministry, when everybody else was bailing out, he stood up and said, I'll bury him. I love this guy. You have to get there if you want to be saved. Now, what's funny is... For the most part, these people had cold, stony hearts. But God began to chip away at that cold, stony heart to where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were willing to go take a tomb that had been tuned out of cold stone and make a place for Jesus. That's what God is trying to do for you through the events of your life. He's taking your heart and He's picking away at it so that there will be a place For Jesus. And you say, my God, my life has been hard. It's been horrible. Yeah, that's the pick hitting the rock trying to make a place for Jesus. And you say, well, it's cruel. What kind of God would want to torture me so that I would see that I need Him? He's simply making a place for Him in your heart because you didn't know you needed Him. Now on that note, Nicodemus has not understood most of this. And so Jesus is going to take Nicodemus to rabbinical school for a moment. He's going to take him back 
to a book that he had memorized. And he doesn't quote chapter and verse because there were none. And he doesn't quote the story in its entirety because Nicodemus knew the story in its entirety. Friends, there are times we're talking about Jesus. And we're talking about Jesus to people and we're going through chapter and verse and reading its entirety. The people already know it. They just don't do it. We need to talk about our experiences, not get into arguments. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. He says, Nicodemus, I've been in heaven, so you ought to be listening to me because nobody else has been there. I'm talking to you about the place that I created. You need to listen. In fact, just as the sun, or just as the snake was lifted up in the desert, so shall the Son of Man be. That everybody who looks at Him will be healed, will, will be saved. Saved and healed are the same word. What would that have meant to Nicodemus? You know, this is a book that Nicodemus had memorized. Do you understand that? We quote three or four verses. I'm talking about the man would have been able to stand there and start in Numbers 1-1 and quote it to Numbers 21 where this story is. Let's go to Numbers 21. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book. I can't write. Is that fourth book? Everybody knows the vague history about George Washington, at least in general terms. Everybody knows a little bit about Abraham Lincoln's life, right? I mean, if I talk about a Gettysburg Address, you could probably spit out a few lines. If uh, I asked you to name a few Civil War battles, you probably could. If we talked about um, more recent history, you know, and I asked you who Rosa Parks is, most people would know that kind of these general things. Well, this was their history. And these were the major events of it recorded in the Bible. They knew it. They knew it from Judah's age. So when Jesus makes this analogy, He's not doing something that's hard. He's not trying to trick anybody. He's taking the most common things, the principles that Nicodemus had learned since he was a child, and explaining Himself through those principles. It's just us dumb Gentiles people who were without God, without written Word, without a testimony of God in our lives, who have come up without these stories, that are learning them for the first time that it seems odd to. That's why the Bible is going to make the claim in the next chapter, Salvation's, salvation is from the Jews. You people, that's everybody other than the Jews, worship what you do not know. But the Jews worship God. So I don't care whether you think they're miserly, whether you think... Uh, Whatever you might think stereotypically about a Jew, salvation comes from the Jews. Something else you need to remember. John speaks of the representatives of the Jews, the ruling council, as comprehensive of the Jewish people because he takes it for granted that you're smart enough to know just because we're talking about the Jew, Jewish leader, it doesn't apply to every Jewish individual. When you hear these harsh statements, your father's the devil, and these other things that are going to be applied towards the Jew, or people say, uh, your blood be on us and on our children, and all, not even every member of the Jewish council believed that. Remember, we've got two here saved in the book of John, John 19th verse. There were only 70. There was a remnant even in the Jewish council, so certainly out in the populace there were. Don't throw away the Jewish nation for some bad apples. 
The biggest bad apples we've ever had have been in our leadership too. Depends on what your definition of is is. In Numbers 21, starting in verse 1, when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road of Etharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. You know, that's beautiful because God's already told them to destroy the cities. Told them a long time ago to destroy the cities. But basically what they're saying is, Lord, this is not going for us well. But if you'll make it go well for us, then we'll be obedient. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Horma. They traveled from Mount Hor <laughs> along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, doesn't matter what they said, let's talk about this for a minute. We're talking about a people that have made a covenant with God, that have been blessed by God because of the covenant, who are now impatient along the way. wonder what we could be talking about. Maybe those of us that are in covenant with God now, but have become impatient along the way. God did not promise you instant gratification. He told you that you must have a rebirth and that He would help you accomplish it. When you were born the first time, you didn't develop immediately. It took you 18 years to reach maturity. And then, many years after that, to obtain some level of wisdom. And most of us still aren't there. And yet, when we are reborn, we want maturity immediately. We want wisdom immediately. And we act as if we have obtained it. I remember when I was born again two years, I was very good at telling everybody everything all of the time. As if I had reached total maturity. As if I had all the wisdom in the world. And the truth is, because we have access to the Spirit of God, I was wise beyond my years. I did have some knowledge that other people didn't have. But as a Christian, you're still in a development process and you cannot get impatient along the way. Nicodemus was in the plan of salvation as a Jew, but something was required of him. And the Jewish people had got impatient along the way. And they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Does anybody know what miserable food they're talking about? Manna. We detest this miserable food. How did you get manna? God rained down bread from heaven. And they said the first time they ate it, wow, this is like honey in our mouths. It looks like coriander seed, but when we gather it and we eat it, it's like honey in our mouths. But years later, they've become impatient and it is miserable food. When you get born again, the whole world is new to you. You're looking through a whole new set of eyes and you're excited and you love everybody. You think everybody's wonderful. You turn on the radio and somebody's singing something bad, but to you, you hear good things in it. And somewhere along the way, you get impatient with God. Maybe He's not changing people in your family fast enough. 
Maybe that neighbor that you're praying for just hadn't come around quick enough and you're impatient. And what, what is food for a Christian, by the way? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of God. And what used to be like honey to you, doing the will of God, has all of a sudden become miserable. And you begin to grumble and complain. God, why am I here? You know, after all, whatever you say to God. Then the Lord sent some venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many of the Israelites died. Wow! What kind of God sends venomous snakes among these people? The same kind of God that will chip away at a rock with a hammer to make a place in that rock for Jesus to be buried. He was chipping away at their hard hearts through a little persecution so that they would feel a need for Him. Now, you can look at that and say, He's cruel and He's sadistic. Or you can be wise and say, How merciful is this? He didn't wipe them out. If I were God, about the second time they grumbled... I mean, anybody ever been on a long car trip with me? <laughs> Ask me ten times how long before we get there and it's hard for me not to bite your head off. You know? We're all looking at the same mile markers. We all have watches on. <laughs> you know? Why do you keep asking? Isn't that a pretty normal reaction? I'm trying to justify my sin now. A patient father that he is provided for them some adversity to teach them. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. Why did God send these snakes, since we're talking about the snake? Why did God send the snakes? Because of disobedience, right? Because of grumbling because of their impatience when they didn't understand that God didn't give them the kingdom all at once. So when Jesus looked at Nicodemus and says, just as Moses lifted up the snake, what is He implying about the position of Israel right now? You're in disobedience. You're in need. There are snakes ravaging you. You need to be born again. You need a new life because death is on you. That's what He's telling you. This would have been very obvious to Nicodemus. It's a little harder for us because when he says snake, you might think of my childhood nickname. You might think of the garden. You might think of all kinds of things. But probably Numbers 21 doesn't come to mind. To him it did. So what happens? Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. It looked like this adversity caused exactly the reaction that God wanted. Do you remember I told you not many weeks ago that you have a free will? And you have a free will when you get to that stop sign, whether you stop or not. But chances are, with the right sign in the right place, most people will do what the sign says. God just put a great big stop sign. I want you to stop your behavior. They have free will. They don't have to stop. But it got the reaction that he wanted. So Moses prayed for him. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. He did not take the snakes away. Sin caused a reaction. Think of the very first snake. That snake yielded to a devilish power. 
That snake deceived a woman. The result of that deception was death entered the world. God has never taken away the power of death in the world. still there. We see it every day as our bodies are aging. God did not take the snakes away. What He did do was provide a means to be healed or saved from it. For God to be true, when He says, if you do this, this will happen, it has to happen. That's not a lack of mercy. That is not a mean, judgmental God. That is a truthful God. And what the Bible makes a claim about God more than any other is that He is truth. If God had said to Adam and Eve, if you do this, you will die, and then death didn't enter the world, He would cease to be a truthful God. So in His mercy, what He did after they screwed up the program was create a solution for it. Same thing with the snakes. They messed up the program. The natural consequences of that happened and now He's providing a solution. Now fast forward to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was in a place where the Jewish ruling council had messed up the program. Israel had messed up the program. And he is lifting himself up as a solution. And even in his answer, let's talk about this bronze pole because we're going to have to close, or this pole and bronze snake. Bronze is one of those metals throughout the Bible that has meaning. If I say to you gold, you think of divinity. If I say to you purple, you think of royalty, majesty. If I say green, you think of everlasting, eternity. Bronze is judgment throughout the Bible. What is the snake a universal symbol of? Sin. The very first time it appears in the Bible, it is an agent which sin works through. It gets cursed, it crawls on its belly to remind us of sin. You look at a snake and a normal person does not like it. I'm not telling you you have to hurt it. I'm not telling you it's not a normal part of nature, that it serves a wonderful, beautiful purpose, but there is a natural aversion in man to it that was intentional to teach you. It's an object lesson. So if you are bitten by this power, and I'm telling you, lift this up on a pole, put it in the center of the camp, and anyone who's bitten looks at it, and they're healed, that would seem to be odd, huh? They did this. It was in their history. They recited it over and over and over and over for one purpose. There was something else in their law. I'm going to have to make this quicker than I wanted to. If you see somebody hung on a cross, he's cursed by God. That was in their law. It's a one-time statement. It's something that they memorized, but crucifixion was not a big deal until the Romans came about. Babylonians impaled. Some other people did other things, but crucifixion was not a big moment of death. But when people looked at this guy on a cross, they said, wow, cursed, because that's what their law said. But because of these words that Jesus had taught, just as Moses lifted up the snake, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And he makes the statement many times later, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw everybody to him. All of these things. A discerning Jew who was thinking about this would look and go, wow, he's lifted up. He's called cursed by God. The snakes that were a curse that came upon us, when they were lifted up, if you looked at it, you would be healed. All I have to do is look at this guy and I can be healed. He said, but how could Jesus be equated with a snake? If the snake was the thing on the pole and I'm saying that Jesus is the thing on the pole, how could Jesus be the snake? This is when Second Corinthians that we taught last week says, He made He who knew no sin to be sin for you. What you're really supposed to do is go, wow, I've been bitten by a snake. I deserve to die. 
that should be me on that cross. But it's not. Now friends, you remember we started with Nicodemus showed up and he said, we know that you are a teacher from God. If what you know today, if what you know is that the guy who had no sin was made to be a sin offering for you, if it was demanded of Nicodemus an action that he must do something, what's demanded of you? You have had 2,000 years of history that has gone by for you to get a written... Y'all, Nicodemus didn't have this whole book. Paul didn't have this whole book. This book was not even totally compiled until almost the year 400. How much more do you know than they knew? To he who's been given much, the Bible says, much is required. So as we're teaching John 3, 1 through 3, 15. I want you to understand the ruling council. I want you to understand the statement about wind and the water and uh, birth of the Spirit and the lifted up of the snake. But more than anything, I want your knowledge to hold you accountable to change in your life. If you don't perform outside of these walls, what we are learning about what we are practicing in here, this is a royal joke. Now, I don't get it right all of the time. I know that. That's what God's grace is for. I'm trying. You need a sincere, powerful change in your life. And you know what? Here's the fallacy. It's not a one-time event. Where many people deny that it's an event at all, the trap that evangelicals fall into is that it's a one-time event and you never do anything else. If you are born, you must also grow. If anything is not growing, it's not alive. You have to grow. Unless, of course, you've reached maturity. But even Paul said he had not reached maturity. Not that I've obtained all of this, but I strive for it, is what Paul said. Y'all stand to your feet. Wednesday, we will cover the rest of John 3, or at least a significant portion. I want to explain to you about for God so loved the world and what that means. Does God really love the guy that's pulling the toenails off of his children at home tonight? I want to talk about that. But don't, um, don't go through this week without thinking about what your knowledge of God demands that you do. Don't do that. All of our learning and all of our understanding is for naught if we don't live it out. And this gets to be cliche-ish. This ought to bring it home. Jesus, we love you. Lord, even as I say that, we say it so frequently, I don't want it to lose its meaning. Jesus, I really do admire You. I love You. I dedicate my life to You. And I fall horribly, horribly short of that. But Lord God, that's what I aspire to be, somebody that is known as a follower of You. Help me not to deny You before men in any situation. Lord, I pray You empower me to defend You when Your Spirit would cause me to speak. Lord God, I pray that I would be willing to be identified with your death and your life. And I praise you for men like Nicodemus that hung in there until they got the whole revelation. And I praise you for your mercy for people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, people like Eric Stevens, that it took more than three years to understand. You are awesome, Lord. 
I love you, I praise you, and I pray for change in my life and in these people. Amen.